0: Get you got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter number 25. We're going to look at one of the parables that Jesus taught. Now, a parable is a story or an account that has a, a useful lesson to it. It's not, it's not necessarily something that actually took place, but it's something that is useful nonetheless. There's a difference between a parable and a story. A story is something that actually happened like the story of Lazarus and the rich man that gives names. A parable typically won't give names of people because, again, it's not about an actual occurrence. It's about a principle. And so we want to look at this this morning in Matthew chapter number 25. We'll start reading in verse number 1. It says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they were, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him into the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye neither know the day, nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So he said this is a parable that was given to us. It's the parable of the ten virgins. And we look at this and we we see a lot of theology in here, but there's just a few things I want to pull out and point out to you this morning that I want to look at. And the first thing is, who who are these ten virgins? Who are these symbolic of? Now remember I said these aren't actual people. This is a parable. But in parables, the people are symbolic of somebody else. So we have two different groups of, of virgins here. They all seem to be the same group, but when it came down to it, there was actually two different groups of virgins here. There were those that were ready and those that weren't ready. There were those that Jesus says were wise and those that Jesus said were not. So the five with the oil, what do they represent? They represent us. They represent the church, the saved. The oil is, in the, is a representative in the in the. Uh, Bible when we see the word oil, it generally represents the Holy Spirit. so these are the five that had the Holy Spirit. This is the saved this is the church. How do we know that because the oil comes the Holy Spirit comes at the time of at the time of salvation. A lot of misconceptions out there about the Holy Spirit. People try and take the Old Testament job of the old of the of the Holy Spirit and try to apply it to the New Testament verses they try and take verses that and misconstrue them. They, they say things about him that aren't there. There are people out there, many churches out there today that teach that, that you have to constantly be prayed for the Holy Spirit. That you can, the Holy Spirit will come, the Holy Spirit will go. But we never see this as an example in the Bible. In the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit came upon the church when the church was meeting up in the upper room and it came like a flame of fire and it settled on their heads. After that, there's not one verse that tells us that we have to go out and get the Holy Spirit. There's a verse that says we have to be filled by the Holy Spirit. But that's something that's already within us. We just let it, need to let it have more control. Not that we have to go get it. You don't get more or less of the Holy Spirit. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean we get more of the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit gets more of us. How do we know that? By the very nature of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. And since he is God, he is infinite. He's infinite in his power. He's infinite in his knowledge. He's infinite in his being. Everything about him is infinite. So even if we have a little bit of the Holy Spirit, we have the infinity of God living within us. And that comes at the time of salvation. So that's who these people were. So again, when we're talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's not not praying that we get more of him. You can't have more of the Holy Spirit. It It is an impossibility. When we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it means opening up parts of us that we have not allowed the Holy Spirit to dwell in, opening up those parts of us so the Holy Spirit can take those things over, whatever that may be. And when we pray, that's how we pray. We pray for the filling. We pray that God will open us up, that we will be willing to let God open us up so the Holy Spirit can have have in our minds, in our hearts, in everything that we do, Every little crevice, every little cavity in our lives that the Holy Spirit can can come into those areas. These were the ten wise, or the five wise. These are the five with oil. They represent the oil represents the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing that this is the, the ones who were saved. This is the oil they received at salvation, and they were ready. They were ready and they were waiting for their groom. They weren't caught off guard, they were ready. Then we see the other five. The other five without oil, they represent the lost. Specifically, they re- represent the lost that are within the church. Because you notice some things about these five, they, they look just like the other ones. You, you can't Until this happened, you couldn't tell which of the five were wise and which of the five were, were unwise. You couldn't tell until it came time to light their lamps. And they realized there's no oil in their lamps. There are a lot of people professing to be Christians today that have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. If they haven't accepted Christ as their Savior, they have no oil in their lamps. They have no Holy Spirit. They don't have the power. A lamp without oil is just about useless. You can trim the wick. You can light the wick. And it'll burn for a little bit. But it won't burn with the intensity and the duration that it will if there's oil in the lamp. You see, because when you light a lamp that doesn't have oil in it, you're burning the wick, and that's it. When you light a a lamp that has oil in it, you're actually not burning the wick, you're burning the oil. The oil is soaking up into the wick, and it's the the oil that's giving it the light. It's the oil that's giving it the power. It's not generated by the lamp, it's not generated by the the wick, it's generated by the oil. And in a true Christian's life, our power doesn't come from us. Our power comes from the Holy Spirit. If we are trying to live on our own power, we're like those lamps that don't have oil. We can look like we're lit for a little while, but we burn up really quick. We don't have the power to sustain. We don't have the ability to to survive. We don't have the ability to fight off sin and temptation. We don't have the ability to fight off uh, addictions. We don't have the ability to forgive the way we're supposed to forgive and we hold grudges. We don't have the power to, to resist Satan We just have that temporary power. The Bible calls them shooting stars. What an apt name for that! You ever seen a shooting star? We're blessed here in Florida because we get we get nights where you can go outside and you can see the shooting stars. And with shooting star, you see them. They're real. They're bright, and they're powerful, and then they're gone. And people will join churches and they'll come to churches and they'll claim the power of the Holy Spirit. They'll claim that they know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They claim these things, but it's not real. And they look right and they look bright. And then all of a sudden, they're gone. Because they were living in their own power. They looked like the others. They didn't have real love, though. You see, if they really loved the groom, they'd have been ready. If they were really looking for his appearance... They'd have been ready. They didn't love the groom. Their love wasn't real. They, they obviously had a love for something else. What? It doesn't matter. It was something of the world because that's our only other option. Whether it was themselves that they loved, or another person, or money, or power. Maybe they didn't get the oil because they wanted the money for themselves. Whatever it was, they made a decision not to be ready. But the groom came, anyways. They had no real power. Their wicks would only burn a short time. I see Christians like that. Christian, you'll see Christian musicians like that. They'll be, you know, they'll write songs and they'll put them on Christian radio, and and uh, and then all of a sudden they'll say, well, "I'm not a Christian anymore." Well, that's not how it works. You can't go to your parents and say, "I don't want you to be my parents anymore." You may not have anything to do with your parents. But guess what? They're still your parents. And you can't become an unchristian. It's not possible. We were born again. The power that, that made us born again is more powerful than the, the, the power that made us born the first time. You can't be unborn. You can live like you're unborn. You can act like you're unborn. But the father is still the father. Unless You were never actually saved in the first place. You were just lighting a wick with no oil. You became a shooting star. And sadly, I'm seeing more and more of this in churches as, as churches are, are not sharing the gospel, as churches are not sharing the truth, as they're, as they're, they're, they're serving up a, a theology that's an inch deep and a mile wide. Instead of teaching the depth of the Bible, as you see this, you're getting more and more people that claim to be Christians, and they're only claiming to be Christians because everybody else in the room is claiming to be a Christian, and they don't even know what that means to be a Christian. I see it everywhere. I see it in the foolishness of some of the comments on Facebook. I see it in politicians that claim to know Christ but want to kill babies. I see it in relatives. I see it in friends. I see it everywhere. They they have this this glimmer of righteousness, but it's all self-righteousness. It's not his righteousness. I have no righteousness of my own. At heart, I'm human. I have a sin nature inside of me, and I'm not a good person. But his righteousness, I wear his righteousness. His righteousness is perfect. And when I stand before God one day, I won't stand in my righteousness, I won't stand in my filthy rags, I'll stand in his righteousness, because if I stand there in my righteousness, I'm not worthy of being his presence. My righteousness will get me cast into hell. His righteousness is eternal life. This is a picture, by the way. This whole groom coming and taking his, his virgins, it's a picture of what's going to happen to the church in Revelation chapter number 19. You see, because what they're doing is, before we read this, I want you to kind of get a little bit of a cultural understanding of what's taking place. At the time this was writ- written, the way marriage was done was very, very different than what we do, we do marriage today. So culturally, what would happen is, many times in the Jewish culture, they were promised as children. They would have the, um, the parents would get together, and they'd have little kids... And they'll say, "How I want our son to marry your daughter. And they'll say, yeah, we'd like our daughter to marry your son. Sometimes it was done to consolidate families. Sometimes it was done for power. Sometimes there was something you know, it was done for trading. There was something this family wanted that this family had. And there was a mutual benefit. And they, they would make these decisions. They would, they would make these decisions for the kids. But when the kids got old enough, the kids had to make the decision whether or not they wanted to go through it. Just because they were arranged marriages, they weren't forced marriages. And there's a big difference there. So you grew up knowing this girl over here is supposed to be my wife. But at some point, you and her both have to make a decision. Do I want her as a wife? Do I want him as a husband? We don't do it that way anymore. I can see the positives to that. I can see the negatives to that. You, know, you kind of look like a if you're supposed to be marrying this girl and you're talking to this girl, it may look a little suspect. But... If you like that girl, and she's supposed to be the one marrying you, you're probably going to be on your best behavior throughout your teen years and all because you want her, when the time comes, to say, yeah, okay, I'll marry him. Leaves out a lot of the, the guesswork. And so there was a lot of this that was, that was done, and what would happen is once they got older, they would make the decision whether or not they would, they would do this or not. And once the decision was made, and that time of waiting was over, the groom would come for the bride, He would come with his friends. They would get together. They would go to the the bride's house or parent's house. And they would say, I'm here to get my bride. And they would take the bride. And they'd take the bride from that house to his house. And they would usually have a huge wedding feast. A marriage feast of the groom. This is what we saw in Cana where Jesus went to the, the feast. Where he performed his first miracle. This is what was happening. And so they take the bride symbolically, the bride goes from the, the, the father's house to the to the, the groom's house. This is where we get the tradition of the father giving away the bride. You know? People, some people don't like that. They think it's very cattle-esque. It's not about cattle, it's about respect. It's about showing that transfer of authority. Because, ladies, until you're married, you're under the authority of your father. It doesn't matter if you're 30, you're still under the authority of your father. As long as he's alive. And if, if he dies, then you're under the authority of your brother. You better get married. I've seen some of your brothers. Then that, that authority is transferred. This also, by the way, is why the groom's family generally pays for things at the, the party part of it. You know, at the reception, we call them receptions now, the groom usually pays for that piece of it. That's why. Because that's that Old, Test, that Old Testament culture Of bringing them home. A lot of that is symbolic. What we do in weddings today is very symbolic of the way the Jews did things back in the Old Testament. But anyways, so they would do that. They would take the person and they would, they would go get their bride and they would take their bride to the feast. In Revelation chapter number 19, verse number seven, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife had made herself ready. And her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. It's also where we get the white dresses for our, our ladies. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. This is the marriage. This is the marriage feast of the lamb. Jesus Christ is the groom. We are the bride. We need to be ready. This is what the virgins were preparing for. This is the picture that's being painted. This is going to happen. This isn't something that is a parable at this point. It started out as a parable telling a story, but what's taking place in Revelation, this is fact. This is not just a parable anymore. This will happen. The church, the body of Christ, those that are truly saved, will be raptured out of this earth. We will be called home, and we will be called to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Amen? What a glorious day that will be. Our groom is coming. See, when the Jews heard this, they understood exactly what Jesus was talking about because this is something they lived. They knew what it meant for the groom to come and get his bride. We look at it today as being something a little little different, a little odd. In our culture, it is a little odd. But when this was written, this is how they did things. This is how Jesus still does things. The man will go and claim his bride. Jesus Christ will come and claim his church. The question for us and the relevance for us today is which category are we in? Are we one of the five wise virgins that has their their lamps ready and they're waiting for their groom? Everything is in place? Or are we the five fake virgins? Are we the five that are just pretending? to be ready for the groom? Are we the five that are just pretending to be ready? Are we just saying the right things and doing the right things, but we're not actually living it? It's not actually in our heart? So the question is, will you be ready? Will you be ready for your wedding? So we talk about the groom, we talk about Jesus, and we talk about the church, understand this is your wedding. You'll be part of that bride if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. By the way, none of us are born ready. Is this Is something you're born into? You don't, because of your family name or because of who your dad was or because of, of your race or because of you know any of those things, none of us are born ready. Turn to Romans chapter 3 with me. I'm just going to recite these, but I want you to see them. I want you to see them. In, and you should have them marked in your Bible, by the way. Romans 3, verse number 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us. You see, none of us are born ready to be married. We may have been promised, but we're not born. None of us are born ready. We've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. This is one of those verses where most people, there are a few people out here that deny they've ever sinned. Um, Trump was one. Don't have to dig very far in that, that well. But he said, they asked him if he ever repented. This is why I still don't believe he's a Christian, because even after he supposedly accepted Christ as his Savior, they asked him about repentance. He says, "I what do I have to repent for? I've never sinned. He needs our prayers. Good president, not a Christian. By the way, the one that's there right now is not a Christian either. They both need our prayers. But we've all sinned. And for most people, we understand that. When most, people, when most people, they read this verse, they say, yeah, I, I, I know. We try and grade our sins and, and, and rationalize our sins, saying, well, I, I may sin, but I don't sin as bad as he does. And then we gossip about that person because gossip try, is our attempt to make ourselves look a little better. And it just makes us look worse and petty. But we always try to reflect on that. We're not compared to them. We're compared to Jesus Christ. And when we're compared to Jesus Christ, we've all come short. And most of us understand that. Most of us, if we started to make a list, we can make a pretty good list of the things that we've done in our life that God doesn't approve of. It's not that hard. We weren't born ready. But we can be ready. We have a promised groom. Look in Romans 6.23. tells us the wages of sin is death. We just established that we're all sinners. The wages, what we've earned, what we deserve because of that is we deserve death. Now death, we talk about death, normally we think of physical death. And physical death and spiritual death have some things in common. They're both about separations. One physical death, our soul is separated from our body. And so our body remains, but our soul goes away. And when those two things are separated, we recognize that as this person is dead. It's a dead person. On a spiritual level, it's also a separation. It's what took place in the Garden of Eden when God would come down and he would be face to face with mankind. And then mankind did the one thing they were told not to do. And that wall was built between us. They were cast out of God's presence. God didn't run away from them, they ran away from God. They were cast out of his presence. And they weren't, from that time on, we're born with that sin nature inside of us and we can't stand face to face with God anymore. That's the death that it's talking about. Because of our sins, we're separated from God. And unfortunately, if we carry that into the next life, into the afterworld, as we leave this place, we end up at the judgment seat, and we stand before God in our righteousness. And we stand before God in our righteousness, we end up in hell. Because we're not righteous enough. We can't be with our sin nature. So the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is our promised groom. You see, the father, he's already arranged the marriage. He told Jesus and told us, you guys are going to be married one day. He arranged it. And so the time we're living in right now, we're at the time at the beginning when the ten virgins are there with their, their lamps. We're waiting for our groom to come and claim us. We're waiting for him to come and bring his bride and take us to the feast. We have a promised groom. The dowry was paid. In Romans 5.8, go back a couple verses. The dowry, dowry was paid with Christ's blood. It said, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us just like in the time of the Jews where they had a dowry was paid this dowry was paid it was paid with the shed blood of Jesus Christ so the marriage has been arranged the participants have been chosen the dowry's been paid we have our groom we just have to make a choice just like the participants then had to make a choice We have to choose. Now, the good news is the groom has already chosen. The groom has already chosen, and it's written in his word that he's coming back for us. He is coming back for his bride. All that's left now is for us to decide whether or not we want to be married to him. That's our choice. This is the free will that God gave us. Now, Jesus is coming back, and his desire is that he'll bring all of us to the wedding feast. The Father has said that He, it's his will that none should perish. None of us. He wants all of us at the wedding feast. But unfortunately, some of us aren't going to choose to be there. Even though he's done everything. He's chosen us. He's paid the dowry. With his own blood. He's done everything he can possibly do. We just need to choose. Romans 10.9 says that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath saved him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Not might be, not could be, not even will be. Thou shalt be saved. The verb tense that's used there is a verb tense that means it happens, something that happens immediately. The point that we confess, we repent we turn away from our sin and we turn to Jesus Christ. At that point, we are saved. At that point, we receive the oil in our lamps. And now our job is to watch and wait. If you're here today and you've never done that, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you may look like you're Christian. You may say all the right things. You may have even lit your wick. And it may look like it's burning Right but it's short-lived. Verse 13 of that same chapter, Romans chapter number 10, says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 10 says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's our repentance. Everything else has been done. Salvation is probably the easiest thing that you'll ever do in your life. We do a lot of things that are hard. We get degrees, we train for jobs, we learn new skills, and it takes a lot of effort. It's usually rewarding. This is more rewarding, and he's already done all the heavy lifting. Think about if you got a, a call tomorrow and said, hey, we got a job for you. There's no training involved, you don't have to to, to get a degree, there's no apprenticeship. Day one, we're gonna start paying you $100,000 a week to do this job. How many of you would take that job? Most of you, right? Some of you would be like, well, what do I gotta do? You'd be a little skeptical, right? You know? Because I can think of some jobs that I probably wouldn't do for $100,000. I can think of a few jobs I wouldn't do for $100,000. Or they said, you know, this is an easy job. Simple job, nothing objectionable. Matter of fact, this job is going to bring you nothing but joy and peace. we be like, what's the catch? No catch. And we look at that and we say, wow, that seems too good to be true. And we would jump at that. Jesus is offering you more. Much more than $100,000. He's offering you eternal life. The ability to live forever in his presence. Read the description of heaven sometime, the New Jerusalem, as it's described in the book of Revelation. We don't have time to get into all that today. We've all heard of the streets of gold, right? It's not just the streets, it's the buildings. Gold and jewels. These opaque, so, so... so pure that it's, it's clear and opaque at the same time. So light passes through but also reflects off. So there is no sun there. There's no need for a sun, no need for a moon because the, the light of Christ fills the entire place. We're bathed in his love all the time. It's not a boring place. It's a place where we'll have jobs. But it's not a job that, that you know, jobs, by the way, jobs are something that predates the curse. Did you know that? God gave Adam and Eve jobs before the curse. Jobs are not part of the curse. Sometimes we look and we say, we have to work because um, of the curse. No, no. Our work is bad because of the curse. Our work is hard because of the, the curse. We toil and sweat because of the curse. The ground doesn't want to give up its food because of the curse. All that, but the job itself, the work itself, that was a blessing from God. That was a gift. Imagine having jobs where there, there was no toil. There was no thorns. There were no thickets. Some of you don't know, but when I, I was a mechanic for about two years. I loved working on cars. Until I became a mechanic. and I will pay somebody to change my oil now. Because I don't like working on cars anymore. They, it ruined me. Because, you know, in my mind, I know what it's supposed to happen. I see the plan as it's supposed to come come true. And and then I go and I put a wrench in the bolt brakes. And a job that was supposed to be 30 minutes now takes a day. Or longer. It took me two days this week to change my brakes. I had to take the rotors to be turned and stuff. So that, I mean, there was a little bit of time that I couldn't control. But, you know, it's just... Every little thing that could go wrong went wrong. The jack that was provided with the car wouldn't lift the car high enough to take the tire off. I blame the engineers. That's why he sits over there by himself. We all blame the engineers. But everything that could go wrong went wrong. Changing changing the brakes is easy. You yeah, you pull out the rotors, replace them or resurface or, or turn them, get new brake pads, pop them in, a little grease, everything's good. Put the tire back on. Took me two days. And I was not happy while I was doing it. Was anything happy about the whole entire job? Sitting on my, in my yard, in my driveway, because bending over for that long, that's not happening. So now I'm sitting out there in the sun. Yeah, not pleasant. But in heaven, all the unpleasantness of that's gone. Nothing but joy. Whatever your job is, it's nothing but joy, it's nothing but peace. It's a place where there are no tears. It's a place where there is no pain. Imagine getting up in the morning and not having pain. Some of you aren't quite there yet. You'll get there. You'll get to a point where you get up in the morning and you're like, why is my knee hurt?" You know, or, or my pinky. Why does my pinky hurt? What did I do to my pinky today? Little weird things. You're like, how in the world? I didn't even know I had that toe. But it's been bothering me for two days now. That's the only time we think about our toes is when we hurt them. And every day it's something different. Some of you deal with chronic pain where it's the same pain. It's the same pain. Day after day after day. Oh. What a miserable thing that is it's all gone in heaven see we look we too often we, we kind of symbolize it down to just the fact that it's a choice between heaven and hell and it, ultimately it is a choice between heaven and hell it's a choice of, of everlasting peace and everlasting torment it is but we start looking it's more than just heaven it's perfectness it's having access to perfect knowledge it's having access to perfect health. <clears throat> a place where all things are made new. You know, you know why things wear out? It's the curse. You ever had a new car? You get in your new car and it's got that new car scent. Those are cancerous chemicals, by the way. But you has got that new car scent. And then you drive around and you know, everybody knows you've got a new car. Even if you don't have the paper tag. You're like, yeah, everybody's looking at me (laughs) in my new Hyundai. (laughs) And nobody's looking at you. But it's nice because it's brand new. Everything works. Everything works in the car. And then what happens? It starts to wear. It starts to get old. starts to get little scuffs. Somebody dings it in a parking lot. And now the body's not perfect anymore. That's this world. All that's gone in heaven. Nothing is old. Clothes don't wear out. You don't wear out. That's what God has offered us. The question is, have you made your choice? It's not enough to say, I want that. It's not enough to just desire it. You have to accept it you have to receive it. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It's the heart and the mouth. See, the mouth makes the confession, but that confession can't come from the mouth. It can't come from the head. It's got to come from the heart. The heart is a picture of our soul. It's a picture of our faith. It's that, that inner being. It's what you know, what we think we are, that essence that we are. That's what he's talking about here with the heart. That's our soul. It's not something that we do intellectually. It's something we do with faith. If we have evidence, that's great. You don't need evidence for salvation. There's a ton of evidence out there, but we're not saved by evidence. We're not saved by convincing. We're not saved by proof. We're saved by faith. This is why even a small child can get saved. A small child doesn't understand theology small child doesn't understand a lot of things in the Bible. A lot of, most of us grown-ups don't understand a lot of things in the Bible. But you don't have to understand everything to have faith. You guys all came in here today, and you all sat down in a chair. A chair that you don't know who built. A chair you don't know where it was built. You don't know how old it is. You don't know what it's lived through. You don't want to know what it's been through. But you all had faith. That when you sat down, it would hold you. That's a simple form of faith. It's the simple faith that we need to have in Jesus Christ. Simply go to God and say, God, I don't understand everything. I don't know everything, but I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that he died and arose the third day paying for my sins for me. And telling God, God, right now, the best way I know how, I want to accept that free gift of salvation. That's how simple it is. But how many of us haven't done that? How many of us will sing the songs? How many of us will quote the verses? But we never take the time to confess. And turn from our sins. And turn from him. This is real for us today. This is a parable written thousands of years ago that's real for today. Because the parable is that we need to be saved. We need to be ready because the groom is coming. When the groom comes, you're going to get left behind if you're not ready. That's the simple truth of this. We're going to get left behind.